Gang, today we're going to look at one of the, the strangest stories in all of Scripture. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. I mean, this thing is bizarre for a lot of reasons. Sadly, one of the most, one of the biggest reasons it's bizarre is because people get it wrong. It's bizarre how they take a straightforward story and urban legends, Christian urban legends, spring up. So we're going to get it right this morning because it means a whole lot more when you find out what Jesus really went through. I'm talking about when Jesus was was led into the wilderness, into the desert, to climb up on a mountain, a pretty barren mountain, and for 40 days, 40 nights, he didn't eat. And the Bible tells us how Satan tempted him for 40 days. And we look at something like that and we think, that's just weird. There's a lot of questions that come in. Now, we're not going to get to all the theological questions. Some of you might go, yeah, but pastor, is it really temptation? Can God sin? Yeah, but Jesus was God and man. Maybe the man part could sin and the God part couldn't. We're not going to get into all that. Suffice it to say, it was a real temptation. The Bible makes it clear. So Jesus really could have given in. And that's one of those things like explain the Trinity. I can't. It's a tough one to fathom. A couple of things I want you to know about it. I think sometimes this gets a bum rap, like he's there for 40 days and the fasting part was just him talking to God and then sort of at the end of it, he went through three quick little temptations and it wasn't that bad. No, gang, this was grueling. This was a grueling, very intense, agonizing ordeal. But again, I don't think most of us see it that way. There's a couple things right off the bat that I want to point out that are different than when you and I get tempted. First of all, when we get tempted or go into a season of temptation, most of us don't see it coming. I mean, he was led into the wilderness, I'm going to tell you how and by whom, and voluntarily went, and he knew what the purpose was for, so he knows this is going to get agonized, and there's going to be temptation, and I'm going. So I know what's ahead. It's like volunteering for war when you know we're losing, and, and you know, you're pinned down. I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll get a message out or whatever. I'll, I'll take the risk. I don't know what's going to happen. This could be bad. The other thing was, he knew was, who was going to meet him there. Jesus knew who was going to meet him there. This was not some third-rate, fourth-string demon that was going to meet Jesus in the mountain. It was, as I've heard one pastor put it, El Diablo himself. I mean, this was Satan. This was the master tempter. I mean, for temptation, this is boot camp. This is huge what he's going to face. None of us, it says in Hebrews that he's not somebody who does not sympathize with us or empathize with us or understand what you go through, but he, like us, was tempted in all ways. So Jesus knows temptation. As a man, he was tempted, yet different from us. He never sinned. And so most of us, I think, last thing, and then I'll go into some of the other things that we get wrong in the urban legend. Most of us, I think, uh, if we knew we were going to go into a season of temptation, you'd probably at least try to get ready for it, right? Okay, I know what I'm up against. Here's my weaknesses. Let me try and be ready for that. Let me study what might be coming. Let me be strong. We wouldn't fast and get emotionally, spiritually weak and just walk right into it like that. So everything about this makes it harder than it even seemingly had to be. All of what I just said is exactly what Jesus did. Now, I'm thinking even if you're a relatively stable person, I won't have you raise your hand. I'm a stable person because that's unstable to do that and I don't trust you and won't believe you. Or even if you're somebody who's not on some sort of antidepressant, no matter what, I mean, you're laid back, you're chill. I would think walking into something like this is going to give you some level of anxiety. I know it would. I know it would. I mean, some of you, maybe you say, I'm not scared of heights at all. But if you jump out of an airplane, even if you're not scared of heights, without a parachute, that's going to be scary, right? Without a parachute, scary. Even if you're stud. I've jumped 
a thousand times. Never without a parachute. Try that. That'll be very, very scary. So I guarantee there was a, in its humanness, there was a, a level of, you know, what's coming? What's there to expect? Who knows what I'm really walking into? I know Satan will meet me there, but here's Satan's mission. He had one thing in mind. Because I think, I think sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the fact that Jesus came for one mission, one mission, and everything about his three-year ministry was from Satan, and even from people, was to derail him off that mission. Even from people he liked, Peter. Peter tried to derail him from the mission. There was a time when Jesus told his disciples, he told them many times, he said, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, where he'll be delivered over to the chief priests and the Pharisees and be crucified. He'll be, I mean, told them plain, they're going to put me to death. And what did Peter say? No, we're not going to do that. We're going with plan B, my plan. You're not going. You have too much to offer. So even he tried to derail Jesus. In fact, what did Jesus say to Peter when he tried to derail him? Get behind me. So he knew what was behind that kind of talk. You try to get me off this mission, Peter, and you're not working for me. You're not on my agenda. You're on Satan's. Get behind me. So he's walking into this where Satan's trying to derail the mission of Christ to absorb the wrath of God towards those who are sinners. By the way, did you know that was his mission? When sometimes I think, well, people think his mission was to go to the cross and, you know, he had to die. I wish he didn't have to die like that or shed his blood. I wish it could have been, you know, I know he had to do that for some reason. He did it. No, his mission was to absorb the wrath of an angry God. And he alone was qualified to do that. You have to be a perfect sinless sacrifice to take on all of our sins and be the sacrifice that can satisfy it for God. You and I couldn't do it. That was his mission. If you want to break it down into detail, absorb the wrath of an angry God towards those who are sinners. Like a lot of trials that we go through, if you guys want to get ready for trials, here's a pattern I've noticed in Scripture. Here's a pattern I've noticed in my own life. Like a lot of trials that we go through, you know, a lot of lows are preceded by highs. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, even physically, what comes after a mountain if you're walking from one mountain to another? A valley. I mean, what happens on a roller coaster when you're on the great high and it's really fun? You got to go to a low right there to get to another one. Well, it's the same way here. I find that when God's going to use me or stretch me or grow me, I've had a great mountaintop experience and I'm feeling great with him. A lot of times, very quickly sometimes, it'll be followed by a low. It'll be followed by a challenge. It'll be followed by a valley. It's no different with Jesus here. What had just happened with Jesus? Anybody know? This starts out, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, verse 1, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, chapter 4, verse 1. What happened at the Jordan? He was baptized. Usually you baptize someone to identify that they identify with Christ and they're proud and their sins are, are washed away. So Jesus did not need to be baptized for that reason. Do you know why he did it? It's another one of the many things he did for you and me. He did it to set an example of what he wanted us to do. So he has this time and, well, how's that a high point? I think it's a high point because you see the whole Trinity at that moment. It's a high point because, remember, a dove descends from the heavens and a light's upon him and that's the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in the form of a dove. And then there's a voice from heaven that says what? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Voice of the Father, presence of the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. You've got the whole Trinity right there. It's a huge, pivotal moment as the ministry of Christ is kicked off 
It's like a big grand celebration. They're all there, all one but separate, amazing moment. And then that's when our text starts. Jesus is led into the wilderness. Full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Okay, there's going to be some more urban legend here that'll get you messed up. So many people start off with the wrong idea, somehow coming to the conclusion that Jesus took part, you know, in, in an accidental temptation here and just barely made it through. You know, that somehow Jesus made a wrong turn in his chariot and ended up in a dark alley on the corner of Temptation Street, and, and there he was, and he had to go, wow, I got I to tap in, I got to make it through this, I wasn't ready for... No, but it says he was led into the wilderness. You know what most people teach that, I mean, when you hear this story, what do you think? Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted. You think that he was tempted to go into the wilderness to be tempted, right? You think Satan led him there. Hey, Jesus, come out here. Hey, I've got something for you. And he just kind of lured him away. But look at the text. Look what it actually says. Led by the Spirit, capital S. That's the Holy Spirit. Are you getting? It was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus away for this time of testing, not Satan, as so many mistake. In fact, the word led, it gets worse. The word led, literally in the Greek, do you know what it means? I know you, you didn't study that this morning, so let me give it to you. It means driven. Stop for a moment and think about that. Jesus comes up, he's baptized, the Holy Spirit lights upon him like a dove. The Father cries out for him, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus gets, comes out of the Jordan, is walking, and he feels this, this urge and this conviction in his burden. He knows what he has to do, and he looks up, walks out of the Jordan area, the whole area of Jordan, walks towards the mountains where it's desolate and nothing's growing and just keeps on going up there and decides, I'm going to fast for 40 days. He's being convicted and driven by the Holy Spirit, driven, herded, prodded, pushed. That's a whole nother thing, isn't it? Why would God push His Son into a situation like this? Was the Holy Spirit trying to do Jesus in? All right, look, if you're a note taker, and even if you're not, this is so important, so important that you get this, write this down. Holy Spirit didn't lead Jesus into the desert to do Him in. He led Him into the desert to show Him off. You've got to get this. He did not lead him into the desert to do him in. There it is. I changed my mind. I want to bring him back home. Let's just end it right here. He led him into the desert to show him off. It's like Satan, go ahead and, and bring the best you've got against my son. He will prevail. Watch how strong he is. It was to lift up the name of Christ. So I don't want to miss this for us because it's the same thing. It's the same thing for us. Why does the Lord allow hardship in our life? Oh, and by the way, He allows hardship in your life. So you might be going, well, that's the devil, that's not the Lord. No, isn't God all-powerful? Raise your hand if you think God is all-powerful. Do we at least get a majority? Okay, that's a majority. Then if any hardship comes into your life, can an all-powerful God stop it? And sometimes He doesn't, right? So He at least allowed it. It's not, it's not super deep logic, but you need to get this. He allowed it. Could have stepped in and stopped it. Why? Well, gang, it gets a little bit worse. Sometimes he not only allows it, sometimes he orchestrates it. 
You know, I think we have this wrong idea that anything bad that happens in our life has to be the devil, and everything good that happens in our life, even the good we think is good for us, it really isn't. We just think anything in our mind that's good, that's got to be God. Today, you're going to find out that if you believe that, that's how you can get trapped into temptation and into sinning. If you believe that, that's exactly where Satan wants you, exactly where he wants you. You will fail if you believe that. <clears throat> In fact, we know from verses such as James 1.13 that God does allow trials at least. James 1.13, just write the reference down, I'll read it to you. Listen, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so the first one thing I want you to know is God allow people to be tested, tried, and all that, but not tempted. God doesn't tempt. Some of you are going, you're not making a very good case, Pastor Rob. I thought you said that God does tempt. No, I said God tests. There's a difference. We know this from James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Testing can be a good thing. If it's not enough, go back to the Old Testament, Job 7, 18. You, examine us every morning, Lord God, and test us every moment. Not enough still, Jeremiah 17, 10. I, the Lord, search, examine your heart. I will test the mind. There's a whole bunch more I could give. God tests, Satan tempts. Now, here's where it gets really crazy. Sometimes the same situation, you see Satan doing one thing with it and God doing another. So here's what I want you to write down, the second thing, very, very important. I'll say it twice, kind of a mouthful. God allows trials to build us up. Satan seeks to turn those same circumstances into temptations for us to sin in order to tear us down. One more time. God allows trials because he knows that's where we'll grow. He allows trials to build us up. Satan tries to use those same things to tear us down. Same situation. It can be for good or it can be for ultimate ruin, depending on whose philosophy of life you are following. So it's important that we understand what's really going on here. If we're ever going to get out of this text of this intense temptation, what God wants you to get for victory in life, you don't get this, you don't get anything here. Right off the bat, I'm going to point out some more things. I already showed you the first one. Here's the second one in verse 2, where it says, for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Let's get some honesty here. How many of you read this passage, you've read it your whole life, and you, me, I'm going to, I'll be the first to raise my hand, and feel like the only temptations Jesus went through were the three that are mentioned? I, I thought that. Raise your hand if you thought that. Raise your hand if you're just not going to raise your hand. Okay, think about what you just did. But gang, there's three mentioned. I know, and I, I got to confess, I kind of did what we do with the wise men, right? We don't know if there's 50 wise men. We know that they came later, but we figured there's three, and we sing songs about the three. Why? Because there's three gifts, and we're so sharp and smart, and we figure there's three of them, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, so that's it. No, there's probably a lot more. And this never, ever says those are the three temptations. And it doesn't say that Jesus fasted and 40 days are over and then he got his only three temptations. What this makes real clear is that Jesus was tempted the entire time. And you know, most people look at this passage and I've heard it taught that, well, there's three categories of temptation that Jesus went through and the same ones we go through. And it's kind of true, you know, you read about it in 1 John, you read about it in, actually in Genesis in the garden, there's the... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the three categories of temptation. And ironically, you have them here. And so 
we say, well, it's probably just these three because they cover every territory. But gang, it clearly says, in fact, if you read it in the message, the message will say he was tempted for throughout the 40 days, throughout. And if you look at the three categories, please understand, it wasn't this. It wasn't like Satan had it all set up. Okay, Jesus, it's going to be an open book test. You've known this was coming. First, there's going to be the lust of the eyes. So here's how it's going to be. Study up, and then he was ready for it. And then he had 13, I think you divide it in half. It's roughly 13 and a half days or something like that. Don't do the math and embarrass me. And he had time to get ready and pray with his father and say, the next thing that's coming is, is the pride of life, let's say. That's coming next, so I'm going to get ready for that, and, and I'll... No, he wasn't, he was hit with everything there was. By the way, the, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all these different categories have a million and one subcategories, right? A million and one subcategories. How many ways can you tempt somebody through the lust of what we see in our eyes? I don't know, could be different for you. What draws you away might be different than what draws me away. What draws your neighbor away or spouse might be different. What dra- I mean, there's a million things, that's just a category. So probably what was happening here is Satan was hitting Jesus with everything in the subcategory until he got to the end at his weakest point and then hit him with the three most major things. And the reason that we mess up here is because we look at these these temptations that are given here that he faced at the end, and I'm going to say it, you're thinking it, I'm going to say it when you read this and you read about the temptations, they seem kind of JV, don't they kind of, sort of, a little bit? I mean, Jesus, if you are really God, turn this stone into bread. <gasps> not, the, not the dinner roll temptation, not the biscuit one. I, can't re- I can take anything but that. It's not a big deal, is it? Turn the stone into bread. If you're God, turn the stone into bread. You're hungry, right? You know, if I'm hungry, I'm going to Chick-fil-A. I'm getting chicken. I'm getting a biscuit. I'm getting the whole thing. If I'm God and I can create them, I'm hungry. It's a seven-course meal now that the fast is over. It's not a roll And there's nothing wrong with bread, right? It's not a sin. So there's some crazy notions coming up. And I want us to look at this and be real honest. When we look at these temptations, you kind of go, I mean, this is God and it's major league temptation. Satan, and he throws the dinner roll thing out there. Hey, Pastor Rob, these aren't very hard. Wish I could have been there with Jesus. Could have helped him through it. It's not really that tough. You got the bread to stone thing. You got the bungee jumping off the temple thing. You got, with the possible exception of being shown all the kingdoms of earth, the third one, in a moment's notice and having them all offered. But if you're honest about even that one, if we're honest about even that one that seems big, we go, yeah, but what's the big deal? Couldn't God just take it if he wants it? It's his earth. He created it. Can he just take it? My son Nathan, where are you, Nathan? My son Nathan's driving now. This would be like Nathan saying, Dad, I got a deal for you. He drives my forerunner. And uh, Dad, if you get me a new car, you're not going to be able to pass this deal up so that I can drive my... If you get me a new car, here's what I'm going to do. I will give you the Toyota forerunner. It's yours. I'm going to go, wow, what, wait, it's already mine. You can't give me my own vehicle. Now, true, he does think it's his at this point, so we have a little bit of a discrepancy. But it's like getting something to give. I mean, if you're Jesus, you're going, you're going to give me the kingdoms? Thanks, but I'll just take them. I'm God. I want you to know something. They weren't God's at that point. How's that make you feel? Of course they were God's. No, they weren't. They were given away. So I need to take you back, and I need you to see how legitimate this temptation is. All the way back to Genesis. 
where Scripture makes it clear that the kingdom of this, kingdoms of this world are pretty much headed by Satan. Aside from observing the obvious detail, the common sense detail that we all know that you'll know people by their fruit, right? You've heard that. Yeah, you'll know them by their fruit. And so if you look at the fruity people on this earth, could you guess who their prince is? Is it, is it God or is it the devil? I mean, if you just look at culture, we're going to guess the devil, right? Well, you're going to guess accurately. But aside from that, there's biblical support that it's not God's anymore at this point. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. One word, dominion. God gave Adam the title deed to this planet right there. You manage it. You have authority over every living thing on this. You name it. You run the show. You and Eve will do this. Here's the title deed to this earth. It's yours. It's paradise. Keep going. As we all know, there was only one boundary in the garden. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you do, you'll surely die. And they began to die that day. But they chose, gang, they did eat. And they chose sin over freedom in that moment. And then here's the punishment, 3, 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, there's more punishments than this. Here's the gist of, the, I think, the worst part. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden, drove him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So if they would have eaten of the tree of life, they would have lived forever. And so God drove them out. So here's what I want you to understand that just happened. Adam and Eve in that moment, in, in modern terminology, were evicted from the garden. They're evicted. Now, if you're evicted from your house or it's foreclosed on you, who owns the title? Who owns the title? The bank. Or if you're evicted by a landlord, who owns the title now? Not you, the landlord. In fact, if you're renting, he's always owned it. So guess who the new landlord is? You picked him, we picked him. Our great, 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 grandfather picked him. Satan. Satan is now the new landlord. Pastor, I don't know where you're going with this, but I don't like it. Tough. One person does. So, God gave the title deed to man, and man in turn gave the title deed to Satan. Therefore, God, is no, long, God no longer had it, and man no longer had it. So, Satan became the God of this earth and the prince of this world. And if you need more reinforcement for that, there's a million verses. Here's two. Ephesians 2.2 2 says, the prince of the power of the air. It's Paul talking. He's talking about Satan. John 14.30 says, I will no longer talk much with Jesus. Jesus talking, for the ruler of this world is coming. This is Jesus talking. He's not talking about himself. The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. The landlord's coming. The ruler's coming. The prince of this world is coming. That's Satan. Until Jesus buys the title back. The good news for us is he bought it back at Calvary. So Jesus holds the title now. So we're back to where we started. It's not us. It's not Satan. It's God. So now something has to change. Pastor, thanks for the history lesson. <laughs> Why do we need to know that? 
Let's keep going. All that to say, these were real temptations. <laughs> these were tough temptations. They were legit. They're not JV. They're gold medal Olympic temptations. But not for any of the reasons are they tough. Not for any, they're not tough for any of the reasons, I believe, that most of you have been taught your whole life. If you've been in a Christian church, Christian family your whole life, and you've been taught about this, these temptations are not hard because of the, the, the pride of the, you know, what, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. They're not, they're not tough because of the categories. We all face those. They're tough for a way more dangerous reason. And in studying this week, I mean, I was thrilled at what God was revealing. I felt like I'd missed it my whole life. I really get into these things when I'm studying it. A lot of times you don't share my enthusiasm. But hopefully as this unpacks, you'll see it. Because it'll give you a lot of freedom in your life and where you're going. So I want you to know the truth about this time of testing. So when we go through it and there's real temptation, you can, you can have victory. You can win. So here's the third peculiar thing. In and of themselves, the three temptations that Satan gives... This will be a shocking one. Seriously, if you are awake, this will shock you. Satan's trying to tempt Jesus to what? Sin. And yet, everything he's asking Jesus to do is not a sin. You ever look at that? Turn the stone into bread. Is that, is that a sin? I mean, is, is bread bad? And I think it is, white bread, bad carbs, all that. that. But aside from that, is it evil? No. Jump off this temple because doesn't Scripture say that your Father in heaven will not allow you to even stub your toe? His angels will come and rescue you and lift you up. You don't have to go to the cross, Jesus. Why would you shed your blood? Why would you be mocked? Why would you go through all that? There's another way. And then jumping off the temple, it's true. Scripture does say in the Psalms that he will not allow him to even hurt his toe, should he decide to go that way. So that's not a sin. Stupid to jump off the temple. It's not a sin. And we already learned that offering them all those kingdoms, they were legitimately Satan's to give. And the price seems so cheap, doesn't it? What do I got to do? I'm hungry. Sure would be nice. I came to save all these people. You're just going to give the title deed back over to me? Well, that'd be a lot simpler. What do I have to do? Nothing, really. Just tell me. Just fall down and worship me. It can be two seconds. That's all. Just fall down and worship me. I'll give them to you. You don't have to go to the cross. Count the cost. Weigh it out. It's another way. It's a shortcut. It's a lot easier. Now, hopefully, you're beginning to see how dangerous these temptations were. And what changes for me and you if Christ would have gotten off mission right there? So again, there's nothing sinful about these. Isn't that crazy? Trying to get Jesus to do, I'm, I'll go further than that. I'll, I'll say they're, they're good things. Jesus is hungry. Well, look, you got power. I, I was there. You created everything out of nothing. Just make some bread. Nothing sinful about bread. My, my kids and I went to the Flying Biscuit this week. They're usually pretty good. I think they had a bad week on Monday because they actually did the opposite miracle. So sometimes bread can be simple. They had their famous biscuits, and they did not turn the stone to bread. 
they turned the biscuits to stone. We were very, very shocked by that. I mean, we could have broken a tooth on those things. That's actually for free too. I don't know why I went off on that. So not, I mean, I, I understand there's probably good bread, probably good food here, not sinful. Hey, Jesus, just do these things. It'll be a little more comfortable for you. You'll feel better. Aren't you hungry? 40 days? You're tired? Get some rest. Aside from the obvious gang, which is if Jesus would have done any of it, he would have been obeying who? That's the biggest thing. He would have been obeying Satan, which actually, think about it, would have reversed the whole fabric of the universe. Because if he's going to follow Satan, who's always wanted to be worshipped, that's why he was kicked out of heaven, because he wanted to be worshipped. Only God gets worshipped. So what happens if God worships you? I guess in some ways you're God. You see the ramifications for this? This tears the whole fabric of the universe asunder. This, this ruins, changes, kills everything, thrusts everything into darkness. This is not some small thing. That's why I think Satan went after something little, tiny at the end because he'd lost for 40 days, couldn't get Jesus to do anything, and now when he's at his weakness, his, his absolute weakest moment, he's just trying to get him to do something little, nothing. You know, he's foggy, he's dizzy, he can probably hardly get up, just, just get some bread, start there, you don't want to over... That's why he's doing this, and it's actually good. Gang, you know what I've noticed over and over again? We're so, I'm so, all of us are so worried, I think as believers, but not doing the major wrong big sins, that we don't realize that it's in the good that we miss the great, Right? That sometimes we're after something that's actually good and we put it in the wrong place, like making it a God in our lives, and all of a sudden it's very, very bad. Satan will probably get you and I more frequently with good than he will with outright evil. I'm hoping none of you wake up every morning and go, please don't kill someone today. Please don't kill someone today. Please, yesterday was a bad day. It was seven people. Today, I want to do, but no, we don't probably struggle, I hope. You may need counseling. But you probably don't always know where the good and the great intersect. So today, I'm only going to look at this first one because as, as deep and as intricate as this first temptation is, the other two have completely different scenarios of their own. It's fascinating. We're not going to do those until next week. Some of you are going, really? You're going to quit in like 10, 15 minutes? Seriously? <laughs> I'm going to try. I might get excited and keep going, but I am going to try. Okay, so we know that Satan was trying to get Jesus to sin, but the three things that he tells him to do are not sin. Satan's not saying, Jesus, I want you to run these drugs for the Colombian cartel. Nothing big like that. They're my, but the end goal is to sin still. So let's take a quick look, and I'll give you a massive hint at exactly what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do. His goal, and I'm trying to think of a, all right, we're going to speed things along here. I got a better idea. I want you to take a look, and this isn't our little cue here, but I want you to take a look at something very, very subtle, kind of funny. Don't miss the message of what you're about to see in the humor of these little kids, but you will see how hard it is to not just go for good. When, when something better is right around the corner. You're going to see that, that, that this is the most simple scenario in the world, but these little kids will absolutely struggle like gut-wrenching and almost miss out on something. Just show it. Just show it. They're going to love this. 
Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one. So then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? okay. All right. I'm gonna go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. Oh, it smells really good. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? Yeah. You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you I'd give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. Now granted, two marshmallows, one, if they'd have figured it out, they'd gone, I'll just eat one and go home and get another one. But it is better, two's better than one, but you gotta wait. And there's a condition there. And in this one, it is simply trading the good for the great or not. So we're gonna see the same thing going on here, only in so much more sophisticated way than the kids in the marshmallows. So let's take a look at them one at a time. Verse four. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. So Satan shows up, takes a good thing and tries to make it. What? Not great. Ultimate. Ultimate. Takes a good thing and tempts Christ in a moment of hunger and appetite to make it the ultimate thing. You need food. When other, what other time in Scripture have we seen someone take food in a moment of hunger and elevate it so much they missed out on something unbelievably great because they made food ultimate? It's a good thing. Remember the Old Testament? Remember two brothers? One sneaky, one a little dumb? Jacob and Esau? Esau got rid of his birthright. He was famished, came in from hunting, and Jacob makes him a little... Soup and stew? Hey, man, I'm famished. Let me eat. Not so fast. Sign here. What is it? Give me your birthright. Can you think of anything dumber than giving him the firstborn opportunity, the birthright? But he's so hungry. He says, oh, right now, the ultimate thing in my life is food. By the way, he's the hunter. He's the outdoor. He's the stud, right? Why did not he just pound Jacob into the ground and take the stew? Somebody like, pastor, that's because it's wrong. It's not the right thing to do. Instead, he missed out on his great position as the firstborn son and birthright for a meal, one meal. Took a good thing and made it ultimate. The temptation in this text then, gang, is to take good, morally neutral things of life, make those things ultimate. Here's what I mean by good. You've got to get this. There's nothing sinful and wrong, for example, about wanting to be successful. I don't think there's anything wrong at all. I mean, in fact, I think it's wrong to set out to do something mediocre as believers or as anybody. So when you set out to be good at school, get a good job, and be successful at what you do, there's nothing wrong at all about that. We could want to be successful so we can use it for God's kingdom and ministry to be effective. But as believers in Christ, would you agree that we're not just supposed to be sitting around and going, God's sovereign, people get saved that they're supposed to get saved. I don't have to do anything. I'm just waiting on Him. No, it's lazy. So I think you can actually make a good case that there's nothing wrong with pursuing success and that we should be 
pursuing success. Here's another thing. There's nothing wrong with money. M nothing competes for the throne of your heart more than money, money, but there's nothing wrong with money. And yet we don't think that. We look at the damage it does and we look at it and we go, well, the Bible says money is the root of all evil, and yet the Bible never says that. The Bible says the love of money. So are you getting it here? Let me just say this. When you make money ultimate, then all kinds of evil things are going to come in. When you make money a little g God, that's the root of all evil. Not money. Money's just green stuff, just paper. But when you make it important, because what happens when you make something ultimate, sort of a God? Well, then you've pretty much decided that that thing will be the thing that destroys you. Because you've placed it in a position it was not meant to have. I'll try to describe it exactly because we can't move on to the other temptations next week till we have this. Next week. Let's say you take money and for whatever reason, maybe you come from a poor neighborhood, maybe you come from the ghetto, the other side, you've never really had even change in your pocket. You've been poor and all of a sudden something happens, you win the lottery, I don't know, you're all of a sudden rich and you know what it feels like to have some money and you like that feeling. It's somewhat addicting. So you want more and more and more and all of a sudden before you know it, money is now ultimate. Money that's neutral is now ultimate. Now, if money is ultimate, then all of, here's what's going to happen. All of your relationships in your life are going to be about bringing that ultimate thing to you. Maybe you don't realize it, but let's just think this out logically, right? Now your friends or those around you are only people who can help you gather more money, right? I don't know about that. I do. I've seen it time and time again, which, by the way, means you're a horribly lonely person at that point because you don't have real friends. Now things like family and children and integrity get offered on the altar of success, if success is your ultimate. And family and friends get offered on the altar of money or the altar of fame or the altar of popularity. When any of those things are placed on the throne of your heart as little g God and they are ultimate, it affects and destroys then everything underneath them. Because gang... Whatever your God is, you're going to position your life to worship that God. You just are. And when, like, when I hear pastors sometimes say, a lot of people don't know how to worship, not everybody worships, that's crazy. Everybody on planet earth worships. We all worship. You know how to worship. You just may not be worshiping the right thing. You may not be worshiping God, but you worship something. I've seen kids who worship video games. I've seen people worship phones. You know, wait in line, spend the night to get an iPhone. If you did that, you can confess your sins and he will be faithful and just to forgive your sins. Uh, I've seen people, I've seen 65, 70-year-old men marry 25, 30-year-old women as a trophy wife to make them look, how realistic, and what are the chances of that happening because he's such a nice guy, right? It's wealthy, it's, it's setting the woman up as a little g God. I've seen, this one will be tough for some of you, I've seen a lot of parents set their children up, little g gods and all. They live, everything they do is for their kids. Anything can become a little g God in your life, can become a functional savior in your life. Popularity, fame, I mean, just go on and on and on. It's funny, good looks, anything. By the way, they're neutral. Some of them are good. All of them can be used. Fame, that can be used for God. 
I don't see how. Tim Tebow, can't you use it for God if you want to? Sure, you can go any way you want with it. Or you can go the opposite way, Kim Kardashian, and use it for stupidity, I guess. I don't know what else we're, <laughs> I don't know what she's really using it for, but I mean, you can use fame for whatever. It's neutral, unless you're notorious. But if they sit in that ultimate seat in your life, they're functional gods, and now Satan's got you, and he can use that one little tool like a puppet and control you and tempt you, and you're going to give into it to worship your God all day long, 24-7. That's why this is so pivotal. As we study the life of Christ through the book of Luke, this is so pivotal. So if you give in to these sins and other things become secondary, integrity, family, friends, you know who the ultimate God is? You know who you've made God? Money, passion, no. Success, no. I said all these things. What? Guess who you've made God? You. All of a sudden, you're the deal, you're the bomb, you're the diva, that's a big word today, and everything you do is to worship you. And in this, you've actually given into the worst of all sins. The top ten list, Ten Commandments, this is number one, you shall have no other gods before me. That sin from which all other sins are birthed pride. Now, I know some of you are like, what? I don't get it. How is that like having a God? Pride's just an attitude, you know. <clears throat> no, pride is not just an attitude, gang. And when you have pride, what are you elevating? What are you proud of, ultimately? Hey, I make a lot of money. Are you proud of the money? Come on, are you proud of the money? No, you're proud of, I make a lot of money. I'm pretty good. Hey, you're a model. Yeah, it's because I'm pretty good looking. So is it modeling you're lifting up? No, it, you have pride in your looks. All these things, by the way, given to you. None of it you really got yourself. Hey, I'm, I'm famous. Why? I, I, I'm famous. Is it fame or is it you? Ultimately, the worst God you can put on the throne of your life is yourself. Is yourself. So, that's it. We're going to close with this. What do you have to do this week? Here's your application. I can't do it for you. Your wife can't do it. Friends can't do it. This is your homework. This is what you've got to do to figure this out. Final thing. Close with this. What have you got sitting on the throne of your heart? I, I, don't, I don't know. What have I got sitting on the throne of my heart? How can I know? Everybody's got one. What's ultimate in your life? That's your homework. Some of you, when you hear that, I know, and you're a believer, you're going to go, God. God's ultimate in my life. I can answer that easy. That's not what I want you to do this week. I don't want you to give the answer. You know how sometimes you, you grow up, you go to Sunday school, and the right answer for everything is Jesus. You can't go wrong with that. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. What's it? Jesus. No, I mean... This isn't one of those moments. Who's on the throne of your life? Jesus. Okay, but is it true? And you're not going to get anywhere this week unless you answer that 
honestly. But if you answer it honestly, freedom's coming. Freedom is coming. So let me give you an extremely easy way to answer that. Look up here. Everybody look up here. Here's an easy way. Take an honest look at two things. And I don't care if you're 12 years old, you can do this. Where does your time or to who does your time go? And where does your money or to who does your money go? That's it. That's it. Those are two indicators that we can't figure out how to beat them. You'll never beat those. So if you're an adult here and you just look in your checkbook, it's real easy. Start scrolling down through that and how much of it's going to building God's kingdom. It might be a humbling, depressing, heartbreaking tour through your checkbook as you don't see God in there at all. Some people go, well, I don't know if God really wants me to tithe. I like to use his money. He does. Maybe you're really trying to avoid or, or, or sort of patch over the fact that God's not number one. He's not even number 10 in your life. So look at where your money goes. I already know where my money goes. It goes to video games. Well, there you go. I already know where my money goes. It goes to looking good. It goes to clothes. There you go. I already know where my money goes. I mean, I'm dating this girl. It's a girl in my dreams. I'd do, I'd do anything for... It's her. I spend every waking moment with her. I spend every waking moment with him. I spend every I spend five hours a day on playing Call of Duty. There's a lousy God, but that's God. Call of Duty. Where's your time go? Where's your money go? Simple determination. Your homework this week, start a revolution in your own heart. Overthrow the current king the current little G God and allow God Almighty to become center in your life. Discover, dethrone. Discover, dethrone. Let's pray. God, it's been all many, many months and you've spoken so clearly in my times of preparation and all, but so many months that it's been this deep and this convicting and this this beautiful Lord, the depth of this story, what you went through on that mountain, in the wilderness, through those temptations, I see it in a light I've never seen before. God, I see now that if you didn't make it through that, we're doomed. If you didn't stay on mission to the very end until Satan just gave up because he had nothing left in his arsenal, we're doomed. So I praise you and lift you up. We praise you and lift you up that you were single-minded, that you had tunnel vision all the way to the cross, Lord. From foes and friend alike, nothing was ever going to stop you. Fame wasn't going to stop you. When they had a parade and hundreds of thousands laid their garments and palm leaves on the, on the trail and, and said, son of David and king of kings and wanted to make you king right there, you knew five days later they'd change. You didn't let that go to your head. When they yelled, crucify you and you could have sent down legions of angels. You could have stopped the whole thing being God. You didn't let anger derail you from the mission. Father, help us to honestly see that in truth, the nails didn't even hold you to the cross. Love truly held you there. And because you died and rose again, we can live forever as sons and daughters of you if we just trust and embrace that. God, thank you that you showed us in simplicity. You didn't choose to come as a great and mighty famous king and take over Rome and be Caesar. You came as a blue collar, a Jewish carpenter who never got education, never wrote a book, 
never even went more than 100 miles from your hometown and yet changed the world in meekness, which is strength under control. And thank you for what you'll reveal to us next week in the other two temptations, Lord. God, help us to lock on to what this means for us and to find freedom in every victory we have over Satan because we understand what he's really doing now and that we can tap into your power and win against him every time. And help us to be willing, joyful servants of your mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us, gang. We'll see you next week for part two of Temptation.